Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. Yo, people, Anna David with After Party Pod. After Party Pod is a part of After Party Magazine, a website determined to change the face and get rid of the stigma around addiction and recovery. Now, After Party is a part of RehabReviews.com, the world's largest resource for treatment centers across the globe. You can go there to see if your rehab stay could be free. Go to RehabReviews.com slash benefits dash check. What else can you do there, you may ask? You can get a Recover Girl t-shirt. Just go to RehabReviews.com slash after dash party slash shop. Anyway, you'd know all of this if you were signed up for our newsletter. What are you doing? Go sign up. RehabReviews.com slash newsletter dash sign dash up. Now here's the show. Welcome to the after party. It's time to change. You're just getting started. You can teach an old dog new ways and not just on Saturday. Hey, this is After Party Pod. I'm your host, Anna David. And today, ooh, do we have a good, good guest and episode for you today, but also... We have something that we've never had, and that was a sound engineer uh, in in the booth. I'm going to call it a booth, but really it was a it's a screening room where we record, and, and it felt so real and so professional. Now, regular listeners know that yeah, this is a podcast about addiction and recovery, but really more than anything, it's a it's a podcast about the constant uh, recording issues that I have. Uh, the fact that I don't turn off my phone while I'm recording this so that texts are coming in. Um, but that's not really what, I, I mean, honestly, nobody in the world has the kind of bad mojo, juju. What do I mean when it comes to, to recording stuff anyway? And, you know, as they say in recovery, if you tell yourself a story long enough, it'll become real. So perhaps I'm only just reinforcing that. But it's really crazy. And so I have this new device, uh, what is commonly known, what we in the business call a recorder. And oh, the mono button or the stereo button or the, oh my God, it's just been nonstop drama and issues. And so my friend James who's somebody who works in my shared office space who, who sort of drives me insane. Um, and and I, I think I, I drive him a little crazy. Um, you know, he's a sound guy. And so he was sick and tired of hearing me bitch about all the issues. So he came with me and he sat there like a sound guy and he like adjusted the volume and he did all these things that I don't do or know how to do. And it just, it made me think, uh, what I really would love, and and this is also inspired my friend. Do you guys know Sex with Emily? That podcast. My friend Emily does this podcast, and it's been around ten years. And she just had her ten year anniversary show, and it was fantastic, and it was live at the Improv. And and she's she has like a sidekick guy, and the sidekick guy is the guy who does all the 
I want a sidekick guy who will do the tech stuff. I don't know. Then I wouldn't have to worry about booking guests and, and all of these things. So anyway, that has nothing to do with what we're here to talk about because today we're here to talk about uh, my fantastic guest, Cindy Caponera. God damn it, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. She is uh, an absolutely hilarious woman who I had uh, met. I knew who she was. She didn't really know who I was. It's cool. She's, you know, sober a really long time and, and one of those people who everything she says, you know, sort of groups peel in laughter. And, um, and, and she's pretty amazing and inspiring. And she wrote on SNL for years. She came up through Second City in Chicago. Uh, she's been on staff uh, as a writer on Nurse Jackie and Shameless. And she was in the pilot for Curbed Your Enthusiasm. And she wrote a book called I Triggered Her Bully, which is uh, which is available on Amazon, and it's full of, it is not about addiction recovery, but she that's in there, um, and it's about her relationships with food, men, alcohol, her husband, I know her husband, wonderful guy, she writes about uh, pre-him, dating guys who lived in halfway houses, she writes about meditation and medication, and growing more in love every day that you're married, and, uh, and triggering people's bullies, hence the title, I forgot to talk to her about this, but uh, she triggered my bully. No, being triggered into being a bully, which I don't know about you guys, but do you have that thing when somebody is afraid of you, it makes you just want to be mean? I, I, I don't know. It's interesting. She's in a lot of therapy. She, she talks about somatic experiencing, somatic therapy. Oh my God, Siri thinks I want something. No, Siri. She never, when I say call blah blah she does do anything and when i'm sitting here talking about somatic experiencing siri suddenly turns on and starts looking it up thanks siri anyway uh that's that's about it this is a great episode uh and so and great sound write me and tell me how much you love the sound and oh and who should be my sidekick huh it's a good idea right okay this is cindy caponera i first started taking drugs by chewing blocks of hash Oh my god, I think my copy has like blood stains on it from shooting up while reading it. Party animal, I hate to say that because that makes me sound Paris Hilton. I was on the, as right. I call it, the Autobahn to nowhere. I'm very lucky because would you have wanted to have a celebrity junkie for a dad? Yeah, so we're going, right? Yeah. Um, so... Cindy, you are, um, thank you for doing this, by the sure. way. And you are the most special guest so far because we have an actual engineer sitting here with us, <laughs> which he's never been willing to do before. Hi, James. <laughs> that's, that's James. Um, a dashing, a dashing man we have sitting here. So, um, and, and thank you for doing this. You know that, um, I find you to be one of the funniest people around and um and then i confirmed that by reading your book i, I triggered her bully now available on amazon which so which so you you did it you self-published it mm -hmm. and then it became a kindle single how did that happen i published it um as a kindle book uh-huh and then our mutual friend mm -hmm. called me 
-hmm. He had read it and other people on the staff had read it and said he wanted to promote it as a Kindle single. And because it fell within the boundaries of the amount of words that a Kindle single can be, Mm -hmm. then he he did like a huge, whatever Amazon does, some kind of huge splash. Yeah, oh God, does that make a difference? Well, and then they put it on some homepage. Exactly. And And for like weeks, it was like on the like number three, you know, within the top 10 of the humor list for a long time. Yeah. For a, I don't know what a long time is, but for me, it was a long time. For three seconds on Amazon is a long time. (laughs) I kept checking after my, because I hired a publicist for like, you know, five days. Yeah. To like help me get. Did they do anything? Yeah, it was great. I actually hired them for two months. And because I had some pretty good, um, you know, I was going to say formidable, but formidable doesn't apply. I had some pretty substantial writing, television writing credits. Oh, yeah. It got more doors open for me. So I wound up getting a lot of press. Okay. So, and so, um, and you had, and Adam McKay wrote the intro and yeah. you got like blurbs from, from fancy people that people yeah, care about. Yeah, fancy people wrote some blurbs. And I just saw this morning that you did a, you did a promo video on Funny or Die. Did you see that? Yeah. Oh yeah, my God. I love that swimmer. so much. <laughs> Cause I made that swimming video just, uh, I just, was swimming. I got one of those apparatuses so you can attach it to the pool so you can swim in one place, but still get a lot of exercise. And so why would someone <laughs> want to do that? Because if you have a small pool, <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying I have a small, I mean, I have a pool. When you have a small pool and you want to really get some exercise, right? you can't just be going back and forth. It's like, it's like swimming in a pond. Right. So right. you get this apparatus and Funnier even still is that there was a time the year before when I tried to create my own apparatus by using stretch exercise bands. Oh, my God. And I was all wrapped up around a ladder trying to swim in place. So then when I found that thing on, you know, probably front gate or one of those sky mall things, I'm like, oh, my God. So then I was doing it and my husband pumps in the sound from the stereo and it's, you know a great song off the wall. And so I just started doing it. And I'm like, did you get it? Then I sent it to my friends who were in a snowstorm in New York. It feels like it might be easier to just like go join the Y. And <laughs> swim there. But I admire, I admire your determination to make a small, a small pool into a workout. But space. here's the thing. When you're in the pool, you feel like you have a gazillion dollars. Is that, yeah. Even Just though you don't have pool. any dollars. Right. You're in the pool <laughs> for that day and you look around and you're like, fucking hell, I'm in a pool. Yeah, in L.A. In L.A. So see you later, everybody. Um, yeah, no, that's... Even if you're on a noodle. Yeah. Yeah. Like a noodle behind your neck and you're sitting on a noodle and you're like, I'm a millionaire. Well, so... So that's a good bit of life advice. Want to mm-hmm. feel like a millionaire? Get in any pool, no matter how small. Okay, so so okay, but so let's let's go back. Let's go back from the pool. <laughs> um, and and so and so we talk like we talk about recovery, addiction recovery. Don't get into the story if we don't want okay. to. But and then career, and it's just sort of. Um, I, I I am not just career focused, but I think it can be incredibly inspiring to people to go. Wait, you can go from this to you know having sort of all your dreams come true um and so you started off um you, you second city is right. how you got started right so tell me how, how this whole journey went so i i wound up leaving college 
And that was partly because I was... You were having some fun. Where did you go to college? Illinois State University. Okay. In Illinois. In Uh Bloomington, Illinois. Mm -hmm. Or is it Bloomington? No, that's... Yeah, Bloomington Normal. It's a two-city blobbity-blue. So anyhow, because Second City came to my college, and then I'm like, I have to study at Second City. But I had already had experiences where um, I'm in college... You know, I'm partying a lot because I'm away from home for the first time. And the head of the theater department thinks I'm really talented mm-hmm. and wants me to audition for the play. And I'm a freshman. And I'm so full of anxiety, I can't. I go to the audition. I blow it off. Mm-hmm. The next week, she's like, go back again. I'm going to give you another chance. It was like unheard of. Right. You mean, so when you say you go to the audition, you blow it off. You mean you don't? I mean, I'm there. And then when it comes time for me to go in, I won't go in. Okay. Wow. So already the alcoholism is getting in the way. Right. Right. So then I... Or anxiety combined well, with alcoholism? It was, yeah. I think at that time, the alcoholism was treating the anxiety. Right. So now I'm... Studying at Second City, mm-hmm. I learned how to do improv. And of course, it's like my world blew open. Right. It was the most organic, natural thing for me to be doing. So wait, so you go from, from this audition for the play, and then how is auditioning for Second City, I imagine, incredibly. No, so what happens is I wind up leaving school. Yeah. Because I'm partying, and yeah. then my grades start slipping, and then I'm like, you know what? I want to go study at Second City. Right. I don't, at the time, there's not a Second City Conservatory. So I study at this place called Players Workshop. Uh-huh. It is there when I get in touch with this art of improv. Right, right. And it's also there where I'm like partying my ass off. And it's all fun. And it's all fantastic. Yeah. Everything is new. I move from the, I don't actually move yet, but I have my sights set on living on the north side of Chicago as opposed to the south side of Chicago. And if you know anything about Chicago, there's a big difference between the two. Right. So now I'm experiencing all kinds of things that I hadn't experienced in the neighborhood where I grew up. Yeah. So I'm partying. And I'm this learning is 20, improv. 20. Oh, yeah. One. I'm like 20. Okay. And I'm fucking out there. Right. Just like having the time of my life. And then um, what happens is we wind up, you know, you meet like-minded people and you're partying and you're doing improv shows and all of this. And then you're at Second City. Yeah. You audition. I had actually moved to New York. I went to acting school. Uh, at the American Academy, I moved to New York, partying like crazy. I get a call that they're having auditions at Second City. I move back to Chicago. And then I start it working in the touring company. And how long were you in that? Well, interestingly, I'm in the touring company. And I start understudying for main stage. I'm supposed to start working on main stage. And the artistic director takes my job and gives it to another actress who will remain nameless for this podcast. Okay, but you'll tell me after everything. And I'll tell you after every single moment that happened. <laughs> and I wound up quitting. Uh-huh. So then I went off on my own after I let that dream go because I was, but all the time being fueled by what we're fueled by when we're mm-hmm. engaged in drugs and alcohol and resentments. Right. And, and you know, entitlement, entitlement yeah. and stuff like that. And, um, so 
let's see what happened. I wind up doing my own thing, you know, doing plays, doing solo shows. Um, so then what happened was, and I'll, I won't take too much longer with this thing. I'm doing a one woman show, my first one. It's about the Chicago fire strike that took place mm-hmm. when my father was a fireman okay. and went on strike. In the show, I play my mother, my father, and me. It's right. very small. It's not like I did 170 characters and right. they all had a different hat. It was just me doing these three characters. This is 1989. Mm-hmm. A week into the show, I get this thought that I shouldn't drink anymore when I'm meditating before a performance. Uh-huh. And that was it. Wait, and that's when you stopped? Back then? And so, because, yeah, so it's been 20, what did we say, Six. 26 years. But I came in through Al-Anon. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Because there was some family issues. Right. So I got into Al-Anon in 85 on the heels of an intervention for my mother. Okay. So you grew up, your parents were big drinkers, both of them, or just your mom? Yeah, they were pretty big partiers. Yeah. And did it all look fun or did it look terrible or did you say I'll never be like her? Mm, I think I said that, but, you know, it was sort of one of those things. It was a big party, family, Irish, Italian, lots of singing. My grandfather was a singer, lots of parties. So it was all part of it. Right. I I didn't think I was ever going to not. I think the idea of not being like them mostly presented itself in I'm not going to be pedestrian or mundane or pay my bills on time right right did um so did bad things happen when you were drinking you know what it wasn't like a bunch it was more the uh demoralization Mm -hmm. i think women if you want to get on this topic only if you i think a lot of women have a much different experience than men in recovery. Tell me. And even though our text is sort of geared toward men, and why yeah. shouldn't it be? Because yeah. it was written in 1935, and um, it was mostly men then. Um, I just think the socialization of women, what we do when we're loaded. Um, you know, I've said this before. I don't know a lot of women who played the big shot. I know that there's ambitious women. Right. I know that there's people like myself, you know, you see what you want and you're going to go get it. And if there's a couple people in your way, stampede over them. you can stampede over them or you can use them to get what you want and then you right. move on and then right. you learn to not do those behaviors anymore. But I don't believe a lot of women took their paychecks and went out and didn't support their family. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think a lot of women were in marriages and went out and screwed a lot of men. I just don't think that that was the way we we operated. I think we may have had a lot of partners before we yeah. settled on something. And so that would create that element of, I don't want to be a whore. You know what right, I mean? Or right. I feel shameful right. that I was so willing to give it all away for a sandwich or what, you know, yeah. whatever. I well, say sandwich. I mean some... I mean a much more elaborate meal. I I, I would never look. Give it there's away. some good sandwiches. There are. I mean, I don't know if I you've mean, ever been to Fat Sal's, but <laughs> God damn it, those are good. So, is this sort They'll of put like pesto on chicken? Now they don't care. Yeah, that's good. Oh, Bristol Farms, by the way. I mean, this is welcome to the sandwich podcast with Anna David. What? Um, I mean, is it sort of like like 
you know, when I, when I got sober, it was like, well, I didn't lose anything. And it's like, I hadn't, I didn't have anything. No, I didn't. I got to the age that I got to without any, you know, family to destroy or career to lose or anything like that. Right. Is that sort of what you're saying about women or? No, I actually, well, yeah, I guess in some regards I am, but I'm also saying that like, for example, I have this theory about women that relapse. Mm Mm-hmm. And I wondered if they did a study, would it be determined that women relapse closer to their cycle? Oh, that's a true thing. That, that is, is a true thing. This site, oh, I haven't even explained the site and stuff. We, re, we do 12 stories a day about addiction recovery. That is a complete thing. Absolutely. Because whenever I've, whenever I've thought about it the most yeah. was always when I was on the brink. Yeah. So those, it was an estrogen-based yeah. um, thought. Yeah. Uh, thought about or lack of estrogen based thought right on going out it's interesting i remember you know because before i got sober i when was i gonna be weird i don't know sometimes and one of the first things my sponsor said to me is write down the day you're getting every month well no i kind of know no write it down because you got to be very conscious of how you're going to feel the week before and i'm like and I'm like, no, I always feel like, she's like, look, now that you're going to feel good a lot of the time, it's going to be really noticeable. Yeah. And so I never tracked That's true. it before then. Um, but yeah, no, um, those four days, man. Oh, and it's really, and so again, I think there's differences and I yeah. also think the esteem issue is different. Right. And I think, I mean, you certainly see men for who they are in the rooms, good and bad. You know what I mean? Tell me what you mean. Well, I came from a family where my father was very powerful, Mm -hmm. like, you know, I'm not going to say tyrannical, but there was an element of, he ruled the, he ruled the house. My mother ruled it, but he, there was an element that he brought to it that made you fearful. Yes. So now I can look at men in the room. Like I remember very distinctly being in an AA meeting, looking over and this man was so excited to get a piece of someone's birthday cake. <laughs> Literally. Literally. Okay. I mean, they were passing out the cake. Right, He's right, like, right. oh, I'll have one. Right. And I watched him eat it, and I'm like, he just fucking wants a piece of cake, like everybody. Yeah. Like, why Why am I so afraid of you? Right, right. You know what I mean? You're just going to want a piece of cake? Yeah, like, yeah. what's the big deal? So I feel like I've learned so much from observing them. I see how afraid they are. Yeah. I see how kind they can be, how compassionate they can be, how the ones that are really wounded behave. You yeah. You know what I mean? You can make distinctions and you can... And I don't know that I would have learned that anywhere else if I didn't sit in those rooms day after day, year after year, and observe everyone's behavior. Yeah, it's interesting, and it does give you such a different perspective on men um, in that, like, I had never been around men who were talking about how they felt. Straight men talking about right. how they feel right. was sort of revelatory to me. Um, and I do think, it, you know, and I, I don't mean this as some, like, self-sexist thing. I think it's harder for women. I think being an alcoholic, for me, I'm like, I'm an alcoholic, I'm a Jew, I'm a woman, I'm a Gemini. Oh, my God. You know. That like, last one. <laughs> No, I'm kidding. <laughs> what sign are you? No, what sign are you? Capricorn. Oh, wow. I'm going to live till I'm 100, Is, and I won't accomplish my big things till I'm like 70. That's a Capricorn thing? Well, it's slow and steady wins the race, and you get younger as you age. Oh, is that true? My brother is a Capricorn, and he is a biochemist he, uh, who is literally working on the cure for aging. 
didn't connect it to the Capricorn. They literally, as, as we hilarious. sit here and do this, and it's not that we're not doing super important things, he is literally conducting experiments on mice where they inject something into the mouse, and uh, they're the, the two mice are the same age, and one is like all gray and uh, like old, and the other one isn't. Oh, my God. By the way, I don't want to live forever. One's but... in a sun hat <laughs> and like little mules around the pool. <gasps> Um, yeah, living the life. There was something about there was something about men I was gonna ask, and I was gonna actually even get like James to chime in, but now I can't remember. So James, you just lost your your shot. You know he's having ten thousand thoughts, wishing he had a mic. <laughs> by the way, um, yeah, look at him being. I good. don't think he's having ten thousand. Oh well, that's the other thing, and this is this is something else. Um, they is, have those too, right? Um, this woman Eat just said to sex. me for this. Um, I was interviewing this woman, not a recovery thing, and she said, I wish I could have dated, I wish I could have raised boys and then dated because I would have seen how simple men are. That, you know, when you go, oh, what are you thinking about? That literally he's actually not thinking it. He's not thinking anything. That that's true. You've been married a very long time. Would you say that's true? Well, you know what? I still, I'm a product of a wish, I'm a wishful thinker uh-huh. still after all these years. Mm-hmm. And I'm probably still the person that puts my thing on you uh-huh. that I want you to, you know. So I don't, and you know, my husband is a musician mm-hmm. and he's very talented mm-hmm. and he's a very creative, he's a really an artist in his soul. So he isn't, he's probably that simple, but he leads me to believe he's not that simple. Right. So I get tricked all the time. Yeah. All the time. <laughs> you think I get tricked by men all the time. Yeah. Because I never, I always admired girls that knew that. That knew that they were simple? That knew just how to be around him mm-hmm. and not to pay too much attention and not to need so much and mm-hmm. not to, you know, let them be. They'll come, they'll come around. Yeah. You're like, really? They will? Yeah. How do you know they will? You might need to run around their house 15 times. Right, right. And so, and that's the thing that I think is different about men and women. Mm -hmm. Not that men don't have that. I think more women have the other thing. Right. The wanting to fix Just the lower self-esteem. I think they come in and, you know, I have a friend that's actually going to be speaking on Friday and he was the first one that suggested to me that some people need to be brought up and some people need to be brought down. That's interesting. Yeah. And I think a lot I mean, more women need to be brought thing, up. though, isn't it? it? Well, I don't know. I don't think it's opposite sides of the coin. You I really don't, don't. No. Like that I'm 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 the shit or I'm a piece of shit. I mean, cuz I definitely have my work has been like sort of combining those. I would just vacillate between those two. You know, I'm right. absolutely the greatest or I'm just absolutely so shameful how horrible I am. Right, right, you right. Know? Yeah. Except I think the thing that makes you feel like a piece of shit, excuse me, is different for men and women. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's that's what I think the 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 demoralized what is it the incomprehensible mm-hmm. demoralization uh, for me always feels like what I did for love. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think women experience that to a greater extent than men. Mm-hmm. What okay so but going back so so when you decided oh, I'm not going to do this did you just quit did you relapse did you have trouble well what happened was while I was in Al-Anon what happened was when I was 23 so now everyone's going to know how old I am if you stick around long do enough the to do math. the math when I was 23 I was partying with an old boyfriend mm-hmm. 
And it was like one of those crazy party nights. Mm -hmm. And I woke up the next day and I said, I can't do this anymore. I called my friend who I was in the touring company with, Mm -hmm. Second City Touring Company. And I said, I can't do this anymore. And she said, okay, don't. I'm like, okay. Except that you know how we are. So if we're not drinking, everybody has to know about it. So like Uh, you're in a restaurant ordering food and the first thing you say is, I'm not drinking, I'll have the French fries. You know what I mean? It's like- But like you, okay, so I'm like that too. Most people are not at all like that. Right, you're only like that if you're one of us. But I think a lot of people who are- one of us because I, I, I was like I got sober and you know my first week out I'm like oh hey bartender can I have a Diet Coke you know because I used to be a terrible cocaine addict and right but most people I know who are 10 years sober don't even tell they'll be going out on dates and they won't tell somebody for five days that they're well sober. I think when you're 10 years sober you don't oh I still tell everybody oh you might not want to lead with that <laughs> Luckily, I'm dating a sober guy. Oh, okay then. Um, well, I can't. I can't imagine you not being with someone. So, um, well, thank you. Um, I okay. So, so you. So no, you didn't. So realize. what happened just, was I got into Al-Anon while uh-huh. I was still drinking, and uh-huh. I, you'd be amazed at how the Al-Anon ladies like to tip back. The, oh well, I know that I can't tell you the number of Al-Anons I meet who then <laughs> two years later are suddenly like needing to get help. I'm like, what? I know. So I was in Al-Anon for four and a half years. Yeah. So the whole, my point is this. I woke up that day. I stopped drinking for like six or eight months, but I was still smoking pot. Mm-hmm. Then I went to a Christmas party and I started drinking again. But from there on, I would only drink champagne, tequila, or wine. Okay. And then I did that for like, I don't know. Till the year I got sober. So the whole time I was in Al-Anon, I was kind of weaning off. Mm-hmm. And so... So we, by the time I was ready to quit drinking, it wasn't... I had already sort of put it put a lot down, and I had already had experience in the rooms, experience doing the steps. Right. Even though... And it was all useful because of the family I came from. Right. Um, it just wasn't for that direct problem. So then once everything was put down, that's when shit really hit the fan. What do you mean? Once I made the leap Mm -hmm. from going from control drinking, basically, Mm -hmm. to no drinking at all, Mm -hmm. from Al-Anon to AA, that's when shit hit the fan, when every substance was removed. Right. And I wasn't having some sort of spiritual, fantastic adventure with a little bit of pot. Right, right. So your first year was really horrible? Oh, I'd say more than a year. How long? It was sort of like, you know, I had to be rebuilt from the ground up. My higher power, I lost my higher power because then I was face to face with the real higher power. Right. Which I remember very distinctly was, please don't hurt me. Those are my prayers. Hmm. And that was... Oh, I don't know. That was probably the first three years of my sobriety. What I wonder, you know, because my experience was that it was, um, I got super happy, just pink clouds everywhere for probably two years. And I and then things got much harder later because um, I just celebrated 15. And, um, Congratulations. Um, <laughs> um, Put your shirt on. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. I, sorry, I'm, I'm about to sidetrack. Uh, going to, when I was like five years sober, going out to like some fellowship lunch after a meeting and there was a girl who's new who took her shirt off at lunch and just sat there. And I'm like, God, honey, do I relate to you? Wow. Put your shirt on. Um, 
but my point is I don't I, I don't know how people stay when it's that brutal at first. My denial was so thick. Like, so people would be like, I wake up with like a head full of my disease. And I'm like, I wake up and I go like, ooh, who's going to pay attention to me today? And ooh, can I get this work thing? And I just was so focused on stuff out there filling me up. And it worked so well until it just fucking stopped working altogether. You know what I mean? No, I think the thing that saved me was my being an adult child. Because I wanted to do it perfect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I just kept going back. Mm-hmm. And I had a real willingness and I was a big seeker. Mm-hmm. So, And you're a meditator, right? I am. Yeah, I've been meditating um, the first six years really consistently. When I got back from New York in 2012, I kind of um, let it lapse a little bit. But just recently I got back. So I'm back to at least once a day, sometimes twice a day. Do you do the transcendental? Yeah, the Vedic. Vedic. It's- oh, who'd you learn from? Tom? I actually learned from Tom, yeah. Yeah, me too. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Jeff Kober has been on this podcast. Yeah, yeah. And so Jeff was sort of the conduit to Tom. Yeah. And then I'm, you know, I'm still pretty close with him and Adele. And Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're wonderful. I, his newsletter, if I could give anybody a tip. I know, I love do you, it. Do you read it every yeah, morning? Yeah, I do. I read it. Not every I, morning, but a lot of mornings. See, that's the thing I read, and then I do my meditation, my morning meditation. It, and mm. it's So I'm doing my mantra, but I'm really kind of got whatever Jeff wrote about that day in my right. head, too. Um, but... And how do you, how does that meditation enhance your spiritual life? What I found when I first started doing it and even subsequently, um, because I got like, I think I have three advances now, three advanced mantras. Oh, really? Um, it was everything that we talked about. It gave me a sort of a internal pause button. It, um... You know, I really identified with I'm the wave and I'm the ocean. Mm-hmm. I identified with the story Tom used to tell about um, you're in a canoe, let's say you're on the rapids. And if you're a meditator, you can experience the nuance. If the air is changing, if it feels colder, you can anticipate that the rapid is coming and behave accordingly. Hmm. As opposed to a bunch of people who are on the boat who Reacting. are meditators, and they just go right over. Because I've they, never heard him say that. And, or, I'm paraphrasing it in such a way it probably but, doesn't even sound the same. Well, or I just, I, I've heard him talk so many, many times that let's just assume I was zoning out. Because that seems like a, the things I remember that he says uh, that I always think about are uh, that, that, you know, we're sort of, you know, genetically predisposed to do fight or flight that like, you know, we need right. the energy to fight off the wild boar. And so now, so when we're say in traffic and somebody cuts us off and we sort of, you know, screech or whatever it is, we are flooded with enough adrenaline to kill a wild boar. Yeah, yes. And that's all the stress that's in our system. And that's why we have to meditate is to sort of, and then when we're donating, when we're not on our mantra, Tom always says, don't feel bad because that's stress releasing from your system. It's okay if you sit there and just think for 20 minutes. Well, it's also like the the yoga teachers say, you know, get back to the breath or get back on the beat. You know, it's all about getting back to it. Yeah. So you're always going to stray yeah. as long as you remember to come back. Yeah. But interestingly enough, I've been doing some SE work with a trauma person. What's it's SE? Uh, somatic experiencing. Oh, yeah, yeah. And she basically told me about a third element of the fight or flight and it's called freeze uh-huh so you're not fighting and you're not flighting uh-huh. you're just shut 
completely shut down. And that's, you mean, that's what the human reaction is? And that's is. A, like a third a third leg of that tripod. Oh, I feel which like Which is I've a different experience that. than fight or flight. Yeah. And so that's an interesting concept to be moving through the stuck part. Yeah. That, and the SE is some of the most amazing experiences. It is such a different modality in terms of outside help. Do, and is, is that like, that's not like drama log. That's not where you recreate the situations. This is all about physiologically removing the trauma from your body. Right. It has, it's not even cognitive. Right. It's based on this premise that you have yourself, and for all you people who can't see me, I'm just shaking my hand. Mm-hmm. No, I'm kidding. You have <laughs> she is, your, yourself, and you build a self. You have yourself, mm-hmm. your core self. Mm-hmm. I'll keep saying self. You have your trauma, uh-huh. and you have the self you build over the trauma. Right. So then you're navigating throughout the world. That false self. With this false self. Yeah. And what the SE does is it's basically breaking that trauma to let this up. Wow. So you're seeping it up. You're building more, you know, it's really an incredible um, experience. And there was something else I was going to say about that, about the shit. I had it because I was thinking about it before I came here. Uh, anyhow. Okay. So, but I have a question. How, what are you and the therapist doing? How are what you're doing is you're sitting Uh and this is the other thing. I'm a pretty articulate person in terms of being able to describe, you know, there's no words because it is so physiological. So you can talk about a topic to get you into where you're going to be, whatever that topic is. I had dinner with my parent and this thing happened. But, and of course, because I'm, it's such a hard, a difficult thing to articulate. But then what'll be happening is you're constantly checking in with your body to find out how your body is feeling when you're saying the specific things. Right. And then what'll happen over a course of time is that your body is going to, you're going to start experiencing shaking. And so, and I'm, I'm simplifying it to a degree that I don't want to, give anybody the wrong impression. But if you think about it in terms of cycles, so let's say you come in and you start talking and then you're experiencing the vibrational experiences of what your body feels like when your mind is talking about this thing. Right. But you're basically being guided through cycles of it. So the whole process is to get your body to re-regulate. You're re-regulating your nervous system. Right. Without the trauma. So, okay. And so. It's all on my blog. Okay. I'm well, so kidding right now. Oh, I was like, great. <laughs> I need to, I need to understand this. Cause I still like, I get EMDR. Like, have you ever done that? Yeah, I have. And it's not EMDR, but it's another. It's, it's a, another way to get at trauma. Yeah. 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 Do you even know these words we're saying, J- James, EMDR? This is like an SNL sketch where we're talking about really deep things and then you cut to James and he's eating like a catfish sandwich. <laughs> Saying, I don't know. Um, speaking of, what a good segue. So so you got to SNL when? In the 80s? 
Oh, no, no. Mid-90s. Mid-90s. 95. Okay. And how did, so did you go from Second City to SNL? No, what happened was I finished Second City. I was hanging around Chicago. And actually, I've never been able to tell this part of the story because I've never been on a recovery, recovery show podcast. before. Yeah. I was unteachable. I was in Chicago. Uh-huh. I was born and raised there. I yeah. went to Second City. I wound up leaving there again on some weird, you know, for some reason, my relationship with Second City was always sort of a love-hate thing. And it was like 1993. Mm-hmm. I'm completely unteachable. I'm out of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, I won't get a roommate. You know, I'm not willing to right. do that because I'm too crazy. Right. Because my whole thing was all about going crazy. Right. Always on the second step. Yeah. And I wind up moving back in with my parents. Mm-hmm. I'm temping for someone, like working. And my friend, who's a very accomplished, very talented actress, Christine Eversole, who's a Broadway star yeah. and a wonderful cabaret star, um, had just adopted a baby boy. Mm-hmm. And I met her years ago because when I was first learning improv, I dated her brother. Mm-hmm. She asked me if I would come to New York and be her nanny. Mm-hmm. And I had gone to acting school there, remember, in mm-hmm. 84. Mm-hmm. So I go to New York. I'm there for like three months. I'm supposed to be there being a nanny while she's getting a play ready to prepare to go to Broadway. Mm-hmm. And they're trying it out in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. It turns out the play never goes to Broadway. So I'm there for three months working for her. Mm-hmm. Three months in, they're going all going back to L.A. And now I'm in New York. Right. So I have to like find an apartment. I find this five floor walk up, bathroom down the hall. Just right. Crazy. I've heard you talk about this yes. apartment. There's some great stories about this apartment. And I wind up becoming a temp at a temp agency, answering the phones, like a receptionist right. at a temp agency. So then what happens is a bunch of people that I worked with at, at Second City, Amy Sedaris, Paul Danello, Stephen Colbert, mm-hmm. came out to New York to do a show called Exit 57. Right. Their producer who used to work for Lauren Michaels, who also produced Kids in the Hall, had just gotten sober. Mm-hmm. He hired me to work on that show. Mm-hmm. I did that for two seasons. As a writer. As a writer-performer. Mm-hmm. I did that for two seasons. And then in 95, a guy that I went to acting school with mm-hmm. in 84 mm-hmm. became producer of SNL, and he brought me in. And so how? So he brings you in... And but you still have to do that famed audition in front of Lauren Michaels. That, I like, don't have no because I was hired specifically as a writer. Okay, okay. I didn't have to do an so you audition. just come in and suddenly you're a writer on SNL. So now I'm a writer on SNL. I'm so afraid. Yeah, I break out in a complete body rash from head to toe. Right. I have to go to a nutritionist and get all kinds of supplements. Right. To bring this shit. I mean, I'm wearing sunglasses. Right. And it happened that there were two people on staff that were sober. Wow. And you were how long sober at that point? Six years, five or six years. And how long were you on the show? Three years. Three years. And was that amazing, wonderful, a challenge to your sobriety, one of the gifts of sobriety? It was all of those things. Yeah. One of the things I'll say about it is, you know, there's always like, I wish I knew now what I, you know, because emotionally, you know, I'm not wired or wasn't at the time wired to, um, you know, that's sort of like, I'll show you how good I am. Like, I don't, I'm more of a person who needs to be affirmed or not right. coddled, but I need to be like, hey, you're doing, you're doing a good job. Thanks. Right. I'll do it. I'll do more of a good job. You right. Know what I mean? Right. So it was a super competitive, as you could imagine. Yes. And um, 
so, but I have such great friends from there, like amazing relationships. And I don't want to like make you name drop and stuff like that, but like who you came up with at Second City and who was there. I mean, they've, it's everybody it's we everybody. all know about. I right? know like a gazillion famous people. Yeah. Who were the people, who were the... Oh, well, when I came up through Second City originally, before I quit and came back, um, when I came back, what happened was Amy and Paul and Stephen and Mitch, they were understudies of the main stage company I was in. Mm -hmm. So that's how I met them all. They were all in the touring company and they were all our understudies. Right. So then when I was in New York and they were in New York and they got their deal to do their Comedy Central show, that's how they brought me in. Right. So then I get to SNL, and then, of course, it's Adam McKay, mm -hmm. Will Ferrell, Molly Shannon. The whole year before, everyone got fired. You know, they cleaned house. Right. So it was a whole year of all new people, except mm -hmm. for Norm MacDonald, Jim Downey, a couple of other high-power writers, mm -hmm. you know, like Jack Handy and um, Franklin, Senator Franklin. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, my God, why can't What's I think his of his name, name right now? James. Oh my God, no, dear God, please. Are you an SNL watcher? No, come on, Franken and Davis, Al Franken. Sorry. Oh, oh my God, I apologize, Al. Um, so those three were still there, really heavy hitter, long timers. Um, but the rest of us were new. And Steve Carell's wife Nancy was on. Nancy okay. Walls. And Cherry O'Terry, and you know, so it was fantastic. Um and. So yeah, and so like uh, so there's sober people there because I picture it being a sort of raucous, and then there's the Saturday Night Live party afterwards, and all oh my of this God, stuff. Yeah, the party was famous, were crazy. But um, it does seem like a number of people who have been involved in the show are sober now. They're you know, oh more and more. Yeah, I mean I'm t I, there's so many more people sober now. I mean even in the rooms here in LA, you know what it's like. You can't swing a dead. It's sort of like Alan on is the actress program. <laughs> so many TV actresses in Alan on. You're just like. Sonor. No, not really. I love them all. That's see, I never noticed. I, it's so I, funny. Everyone's setting boundaries. Yeah, yeah. And then, then it's we're hilarious. Boundaryless over in the old sister and then program. The old, yeah, in the sister program, everyone's boundaryless, and in the other program, everyone's stomping on everyone to get what, it, what they want. It's ridiculous. But I'll tell you, you know, it, you know, getting sober was the last thing on earth I wanted to do, and I'm a very shallow, less shallow as time passes, but the fact that I could walk in these rooms and there are famous people there, I'm going to say like probably 50% of the, like a very high percent, 70% of the reason that I thought it was cool was like, oh, look at him. What? He could be anywhere at 7.30 in the morning and he's here. And I mean, luckily recovery has helped me with a lot right. of that stuff, but um but I, you know, when I would, you know, comedians would share and I'm like, I mean, people pay money to go hear this and I just get to sit here and, you know, whatever. Um, but, but, okay, wait, I, okay, moving through, I'm very organized here. You, um, you, you were in the pilot for Curbed, right? Yeah. And so I, how did that come to be? You were an act, you weren't writing on it. You were in I it. was an actress because I still have a pretty strong performance background. Yeah. Um, what happened was I left SNL and Jeff Garland, who mm -hmm. of course is on Curb, his, him and his wife, I've known since like 1985. His mm -hmm. wife, used, Marla, was a dancer in New York and then she was an agent at this Chicago agency. So I've known them forever. And I think they were having auditions in New York and Jeff called me in and I just went in and... 
Um, and it was funny because I had just left SNL and we were shooting in Central Park and right before my, because I'm like jogging in place waiting to, you know, do my thing. And who's walking through the park going to work? Lauren Michaels. Lauren Michaels in his Prada coat. Mm-hmm. I'm like, hey, what's up, Lauren? <laughs> just like, oh, um, Larry David, by the way, my last name is David, is not my relative. We do have like, I, my dad's second cousin is named Larry David and he's like That's used hilarious. car salesman. But I, yeah, I saw Larry David at a party once and tried to share this anecdote with him. And guess who was not remotely interested in hearing this anecdote? Larry David. Less. Um, and, and so, and now are you, you're on a show, which you've written on Nurse Jackie. You were like a head producer on. I yeah? was a supervising producer. Yeah. Well, well, yeah, I mean, you and know. shameless too. And shameless. I was a producer. I, t- I had to take a, I had to go down a credit on shameless cause it was my first drama. Oh, is that how that works? Yeah. I was just at coffee with a writer friend cause we were going over some ideas and it was just like, we were kind of skimming through our history of showbiz stories mm-hmm. shameless was interesting because you know it's about six kids with an alcoholic father yeah and, you know it was interesting anyhow what um what was that like switching from comedy to drama was that your first time working on something dramatic uh well it wasn't fully dramatic but it was you know, I feel like tonally, even though they try to call themselves a comedy now, it's not really a comedy. It's more like an outrageous, outrageousness. Mm-hmm. It doesn't necessarily feel like a comedy. It feels just like something that's, I don't know, off its hinges. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Um, so, and I felt like at the end of the day, you know, I love John Wells. I've always really admired him. And I f- feel like he, there would be moments where... I think you. I think you'd get more mileage out of landing on something funny, and he would think you would lose the emotional, right? You know, gravitas of not landing on something emotionally. You know right, what I mean? Right. Right. Whatever. There's all kinds of ways to approach something, and you you have to approach it the way you're supposed to approach it, unless it's your thing. What, um, so what, what are you working on now? Slash what would, what do you, what's your dream? Are you living the dream right now? You got the pool. So we know you're living yeah, the dream. Yeah. And I got a new, uh, another dog. So I am kind of living the dream. Yeah. And I you, got a fantastically awesome husband. So yeah, I'm kind of living the dream. What, um, but if you have $10, I would, I'll be. <laughs> James so, says. I just want to grab. A sandwich. Yeah. So I mean, actually thinking I might just get a, a fucking couple, a duo taco thing. <laughs> living it up i might live it up speaking of of your husband and 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 in the in in uh i triggered her bully there were so many things i related to but that i thought it was interesting because you talked about sort of like just falling more and more in love with him all the time and that it didn't really start off as this thing oh my god i can't even begin to tell you how much i didn't want to get married i mean it wasn't that i didn't want to get married it was just i couldn't get my head around it. Right. I had my friend write out all the invitations. That was her gift to me. I didn't even do my invitation. Right. My, the musical director at SNL, who's this awesome woman named Cheryl Hardwick, she threw my engagement party. Mm -hmm. Like I was so far away from planning my wedding. And I, this, I don't even know if this is in that story. Maybe it is, but the morning of my wedding, it was raining. Mm Mm-hmm. I didn't have anyone to do my hair. 
I thought I did, mm -hmm. but I didn't confirm it because mm -hmm. it wasn't on my radar. Mm -hmm. I saw one of the hair the hair guys from SNL walking down my street mm -hmm. on Avenue B mm -hmm. the morning of my wedding as I look out the window in the rain because I'm crying because I can't believe I have to get married. Yeah. And I fucking get out. I run out of my apartment and I yell at him to come do my hair. Wow. I didn't have a hair person. And then my makeup person wound up doing my hair. I mean, he set the curlers and everything. And so, and yet, however, how long have you been married now? 18 years. So, so it's, it was arranged by my therapist. I always say that. My marriage was arranged by my therapist because she kept reminding me what a good man I had. Mm -hmm. She told me a few things. If you can get on the other side of a conflict, mm -hmm. that's half the battle. Yes. And that he it was so emotionally, you know, like I couldn't be with a guy that was too aggressive mm -hmm. or too much of a wandering eye. Like yeah. that stuff would have triggered all kinds of stuff in me. Yeah. So I needed a certain, you know. Yeah, a sweetheart. And so, of course, our first fight was me yelling, you drive like a pussy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, because he wasn't driving highway and we, you know what? So now what do you so drive? funny right now? No, last, yesterday we had another fight about driving yeah. yesterday. You know, when a man can't drive, <laughs> it's not sexy. I used to say like the way a man drives is how he is in bed. You know, I don't know if that's true, but I, you know, but like, I, I'm really in my relationship, the shitty driver. So, so, but no, he's a great driver, but he's cautious. Well, it's not that he actually, he, he told me something yesterday, which is it's different for women. If you want to go beeping at everybody, yeah. it's different than if uh, a guy is beeping behind a guy and then all of a sudden that fucking guy's pulling over and now he has to fight. He's like, I don't want to fight. I once will tell you, I was driving with, I'm a big old honker. I, oh. I'm like a Russian cab driver. All I do is honk <laughs> and step on the gas. <gasps> I will let this be a warning. <laughs> Driving on Fountain, West Hollywood, my hood, no big deal. And I'm just honking at some guy. I can't, but I do remember we turn left and he, and, and I get past him and he starts racing after me and did that thing that like he, he did that thing where he kind of went around and made me pull over. I don't know how how you describe that, like what a cop would do if oh you were. Oh my god! And and he throws open his door and he comes over. He's like, I'll never forget. This. He's like, Why are you driving like a bat out of hell, bitch? Very angry. He was. I, I think he was. Some gay. guy looked at me once and called me an asshole. He's like, You're an asshole. Once? That's only happened. Yeah, I mean, it, it only happened once because I was. When I'm driving. I was trying to make a left onto a street that had oncoming traffic toward me and yeah. oncoming traffic going the and traffic going the other and it was like rush hour and i'm trying to fucking work my shit through like six lanes of traffic to yeah. make a left and he just looked at me and he's like you're an asshole and i thought i know i kind of am Driving right now makes everyone an asshole but yeah no he's i can't believe after all these years it's sort of like you know what it shut up our rule is if you're not driving you have to shut up yeah, that's a good I take one. the route I want to take. Yeah, I go as fast as I want to go. I do whatever I want because I'm driving. Yeah, that's a good that's a good relationship rule. So that's a good relationship. Like, like don't fight before you go to bed. Yeah, if you're not driving, you have to shut up. What else? What else do we all need to know? Um, what are some of our other rules? Um, 
What about do you, uh, you know, they say women speak something like 80,000 words a day and men speak like 30,000 <laughs> and that the women should go and like talk to their friends because like men always just don't. You cannot bring. But you can only bring. I like, met him. He's a talker too, right? Oh no, my husband's like the unofficial mayor. He's like a yeah. Fucking, I'm like, who? What are you running for? <laughs> so, or sometimes we'll walk the dogs. I'm like, he'll start a conversation with anybody. Yeah, God, people do that. I'm yeah, like, are you still? Ta- I have to always pretend like I'm in a hurry to yeah. get out. <laughs> so you don't need. So is there's no relationship rule around talk less? No, but I don't bring everything to him. Yeah, oh, that's interesting. But yeah. we've been together long enough where we have the vernacular, we have our fighting pattern. You know, when when you're just starting out, you don't know how to fight with each other. Like, yeah. He used to do this thing where he'd be like, um, uh, I can't take it anymore. I'd be like, well, all right, so what is that? Does I can't take it anymore mean you're leaving? <laughs> right. Or you can't just say you're leaving. Right. Now we just bought this house. Right. We live in LA together. Right. Um, and we had one of those... And I'm so sensitive to it. We had one of those, um, he's got me in the car and now I'm going to get the big fucking mm-hmm. lecture. Mm-hmm. You hold me hostage in the car mm. so you can drive and talk at me. Mm-hmm. That'll never happen again. So I'm very sensitive to it when I see it happening in other cars. Like, Yeah, like there's a couple in front of me and the guy's just, nah, 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 and she's just looking out the window, looking out the window. And I'm like, <laughs> I want to be like, situation. pull over yeah. and shut your mouth. You don't hold her hostage in the car. Yeah. I feel like I'm more likely to hold a man hostage in a car than to be held Well, you know, hostage. they say that... Um, and I just heard this with little boys and with older men, mm-hmm. you know, with men, a car is a good place to get them talking because they're staring ahead. Mm. They don't have to look at you and they don't have to be all, they have another focus and they can just free to be you and me kind of thing. What amazes me, I'm God, I'm getting off track, but the men that don't feel any pressure to bring any conversation to a meal. You know, or just like, you know, y'all will sit there and just kind of, you know, I've known so many men. We'll just like sit there and eat. It's like, well, no, we're sharing a meal. Let, let's talk. No, no. This oh my isn't... God. Here's a bone of contention with us. Early on, I'm like, can't we just go out to breakfast and read the paper together? Oh, he wants to talk. But he, he wants to talk, but then oh, we're not talking you're about the man. anything. You're the man in the in the scenario that I'm painting. Sometimes, but then we're not talking about anything. Yeah. So now what? Yeah. And yeah. And then sometimes we'll have these conversations now where I'm like, you know what? If we were dating now, we wouldn't be dating anymore. <laughs> well, because they're just so. Because even early, <laughs> we were like a couple so soon into the relationship. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So we're living in New York, and I just had lunch with friends, and he's asking me how it went, and I'm telling him, and then he walks away from me, mm-hmm. and I'm like, "Don't you want to hear about how the rest of the lunch went?" Mm-hmm. He's like, "Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Okay, what happened?" I'm like, <laughs> "I had a salad." <laughs> And then it was sort of like, here's where, really? I had to bring him back to tell him I had a salad? Yeah. That's ridiculous. Yeah. So, you know, there are conversations that you have where you're just like, if we weren't married. We'd be done. And you led with the, like, you might have mild psoriasis right now. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. Or whatever. I like to say mild to severe because that's what the commercial says. Oh, does it? Mm-hmm. I love it. Commercials. You can tell who wrote the ad when you're watching the ad and the woman's like, I have mild to severe. And you're just like, no one talks like that. 
What? Um, but that reminds me. And I know, how are we doing on time, by the way? Are we like, am I just rambling? I see, because I have a... James, you got a counter. It's 52 minutes. Okay, good, good, good. We're kind of right on schedule with the okay, rambling. Okay, good. You know, but something that you wrote about in the book, which I think is really interesting, is the medication issue. And I was just talking to somebody about that this morning. Okay. You know, this idea, uh, non, non-doctors who are sober will sort of have a lot of opinions about how, if you're sober, you shouldn't be taking any medication. You know, that whole thing. Right. Where do you stand on all that? Um, well, I feel in terms of antidepressants, in terms of antidepressants, I'm not talking about if you have like some kind of uh, super anxiety disorder and you need Xanax. I mean, that's between you and your sponsor and God and your doctor. That's, right. But I think there is a quality of life issue. I think there is a lot of stuff that happens to our brains involving dopamine and serotonin and stuff. You know, they talk about that. And actually, I just read it at a meeting in the family afterward. They talk about really? there's physicians. Yeah. Now, yeah. we are in a super pharmaceutical overdrive society. Yes. And I was just talking to a friend the other day, like a great thing about being sober is we're not subjected we have to be very mindful of things so we're not being constantly subjected to all different... Like, I know people who have... They're like, well, I have a Xanax in my purse or I have an Ambien in my purse. Why don't you just take a blah, blah, blah? Like, they have the shit on them all the time. Right. So, but I believe that depression is a very serious issue. Yes. I feel like you have to discern for yourself. You need the... You need a psychiatrist's evaluation, mm-hmm. a psychopharmacologist evaluation. You need to run it by your sponsor. And again, your sponsor is only your sponsor. Yeah. They are literally there to take you through the steps and to be a power of example, literally, initially, and originally to take you through the text. Yeah. Not to, I can't tell you how many people, sober people will call me and say, if my manager wants to try to sell my show and I'm like, I, I'm, right. I'm not exactly sure what's happening right now. Right, right. I have a lot of experience in show business. Right. And in sobriety, and I can probably talk you through how your manager's trying to fuck you right now. Right. But I don't think it's my responsibility. Yeah. So your sponsor can have a say. A lot of times, too, you're, you come to your sponsor, depending on how you're raised. You know, there's so many... It's so complicated. Yeah. But if your sponsor is your parent... You better be careful. Yeah. Because if your pseudo parent is telling you that they don't believe in medication and you have a legitimate chronic mental illness, you're going to be fucked. Yeah. So it's no nobody's business. Yeah. And even if they're not your quote unquote parent, anybody who's in a position where they're supposed to reflect back to your reality and they are not a doctor and they're telling you right. you shouldn't. I've had it. I, you know, right. I, my, my first sponsor went out when I had a year, so I've been... I've been around the, you know, the bend with different ones. And I've had a couple who were like, you're not sober if you take a medication. And, and even this morning, I heard someone share about this. Uh, Somebody said, you know, that she was, you know, thinking about a medication and, um, and then she decided that she didn't want to not experience the full, like, life. You know, and I'm like, if you trust me when I tell you, you get the highs and the lows. And you know, if you if you have clinical mental depression, if you take an antidepressant, you it doesn't do anything to your life, but take away the black cloud that's preventing you from getting out of bed. Yeah, on a daily basis. Now, in early sobriety, you do experience some depression. You need to, and 
you sometimes you'll go through the steps, you'll show up at meetings, and it will be alleviated. And that's, I think, where the the issue comes into play because you may be taking it too early. And if you get on it too early, it might, you know what I mean? But yeah. again, it says very clearly, it's an outside issue. Yeah. It is not the issue for a like-minded alcoholic. Yeah. Yeah. It's not the, it's not, it doesn't belong in the room. Yeah. It doesn't belong in the room. Yeah. So Do I feel pretty strong about that, I guess, because I'm yelling. Yeah, well, to be fair, you've yelled a lot. That's not true at all. I do yell a lot. Um, but okay, my wait, husband wait. calls me yell for talk, but that's okay. <laughs> I'm Italian. With, with a do? lot of affection. What? Um, what, oh God, I had something good. There was something you were trying to remember. Did you ever remember that? I didn't. Oh, but what was I about to say? Um, something about yeah, who 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 knows? But um, but what? Oh oh, do you think? Long-term sobriety, things get easier or harder or both? And how? Um, I think both. Look, the longer you're sober, the longer you're going to experience what happens when, you're, when you have time on the planet. Like when my mother had her stroke and then my mother's dying years later. My mother had her stroke when I was nine years sober I was in therapy right at the point where you're supposed to get angry at your parents for mm-hmm. not doing what you think they should have done. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom has this massive stroke. Now I have to participate in the family in a way where I need to try to be more generous to a woman who I resent. Mm-hmm. I lose my higher power because I can't get my head around the God that's going to give my mom a stroke. Like mm-hmm. everything changed. So in answer to your question, it's both. What you can put together is more consistent good days. Like my thing right now is I'm trying to put together a good day. What does that look like? Mm -hmm. All right. So it looks like maybe meditation, Mm -hmm. maybe a meeting, maybe some exercise, Mm -hmm. maybe a little writing, maybe a little friend time, Mm -hmm. uh, maybe some 12 step work or, you Mm -hmm. know, calling someone who needs, you know, some relationship time, mm-hmm. some meet, you know what I mean? Like 11 things. Mm-hmm. And then you can go to bed and you put together a good day. Mm-hmm. Now, the other thing that happens is you become, and this is again, back to the SE work, you be you start to have this capacity to hold more than one thing at a time. Mm-hmm. So I'm truly, truly grateful, even though I'm worried about something. Right, right, right. Uh, I'm completely, you know... Um, in the present moment and I'm in my day and I'm, I'm doing what I needed to take care of such things. Right. And, but then something's happening with a family member and I'm not sure how to handle that. Right. Right. So it's all in my body now. Yeah. That's interesting. Whereas earlier, like when we're less emotionally mature or whatever, it's sort of one thing at a time. I can handle this. Right. Right. And, and more, more sort of highs and lows, would you say? Mm -hmm. And then it becomes more, you know, I know for me, it was always like, Everything would be great, 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 great. And then I'd hit and then I'd crash. And now it's more like I have the full breadth of human experience in most days. Yes. You know, well, it's you know not always funny? great. No, it's so funny that you say that because, it, uh, my, you know, Adam has the movie The Big Short out right now. Which yeah. Is a, have you seen so it already? Go, yeah, I saw it last night. I'm dying it's, to see it's it. It's just beyond. And it reminds you of this 
the housing market crash, which yeah. was so devastating, and all the players, and it gets you mad all over again, which I think is good. So maybe some days we can get these fucking bankers in jail. Sorry if I'm going to be followed by the FBI now, but um, all this to say, one of the things in the movie that they talked about this this premise or this idea is that they talk about these tangential oh shit adjacent uh, i'll describe it this way the housing market's the housing market's going really good so it's never going to not be good right and my i was just the very thought of that i just want to say who would ever think right. that something is going to be good forever who would ever think that well i'll tell you who would think that who coke addicts like me when like you don't get that what comes up must come down you're like oh my god i'm just gonna right isn't that sort of the that's same why thing? i feel like at the end of the day yeah. it's the whole it's capitalism breeds the addiction yeah yeah capitalism breeds the addiction well it's a completely addictive society that we're in right i agree yeah and and all the systemic problems everything that's everything how many people are in jail it's like 85 percent, 95 percent of the people in jail are behind in jail behind drinking or drugging. Right, right. It's like, it's, and then when they talk about every alcoholic affects five people. Oh, yeah. So just fucking imagine we are a nation of addicts. Yeah. Absolutely. But also just the idea that, you know, we're constantly being like, like if you're not going to check out with like a, a drug or an alcohol, it's like TV and shopping, mm-hmm. you've got to go buy and then it's going to make you happy. And like all of these things, like everything about our society, the goal is to take us out of the moment, which is like the only place we can truly ever find any bliss. But I that's care. the thing. I think at the end of the day, for me right now, you're trying to just put together, yeah. a, you're dry, trying to put together a joyful day. Yeah. And every moment's not going to feel. Right. And sometimes the hyper-consciousness is really exhausting. It sure is. So, you know, you're just trying to put together a good 24 hours. Yeah. And sometimes our minds won't let the 24 hours, won't let you seek refuge in 24 hours. Right. It wants to know so much more. Yeah. Oh, it wants to know about tomorrow, next year, and right. 10 years. But that's all we get. Yeah. No matter how much time we have. I'm not saying, I'm a huge advocate for sober history. <laughs> I don't feel like we're all on the same plane. Like, you everyone has the same chance of using today. I don't believe that. I believe if you have a sober history, that's the reason you stay sober continuous days and nights. So that when you bump up against something, you say, oh, right, I was through this before. Or, oh, I heard so-and-so at a meeting and they've been through it before. And I'll go see if they can help me through this. Right, rather than like, I'm going to go. Right, I better go drink about it. Um, Well... Cindy, this has been fantastic. Are you having fun? Did you have fun? Have I you did. had fun? Can you not tell yet? You're, are you going to have to assess? No, it I'm going to have six million things to say. I know as soon as I get off this microphone. Oh, I can't wait. Well, this <laughs> this has been fantastic. I'm so grateful you came in and did this. Is there anything else you want to tell? Uh, oh, I wanted to say, yes. um, please, if you get a chance to check out my book, I triggered her bully. It's available on Amazon in paperback, in Kindle, and on Audible. And there's a couple of really fun Christmas stories on there that are perfect for the season. Yes. And so... Um, and Adam McKay wrote the intro. And Adam it's McKay wrote really a beautiful funny. little intro, right? It's a really, really funny, I love him so much. smart, insightful book. So, and, I, so um, and have a great holiday. Yeah. Sober, if you have to be. Or if not, live it up. Yeah. 
All right, that was Cindy Caponera. This was After Party Pod. Find us, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are not sold because they're free. What? It's free? What a great thing. God, doesn't that make you want to go give it a five-star review? I wouldn't object. See you next time.